So if you want to open um, your blue Bible, we're going to be in John chapter 17, verses 1 through 26. Great job, Robert. That is... uh, that is, that's like a full page, even in a, even in a small Bible. And it, it's, an, it's an amazing prayer, and I'm really thankful for the opportunity for us to really focus on who Jesus is, what he is praying, why he's praying it, and why that makes a difference for us here today. And what I want us to do as we begin to go through this, John 17, page 903, is just to look real briefly at what Jesus is doing. One, at the beginning of this prayer, he's praying for himself. He's praying that God would give him the grace and the strength, that he would have the help of the Holy Spirit to complete his mission, that he would have the obedience to fulfill what the Father had sent him to do, that he would have the strength to be handed over to suffering and death and to go through the agony of the cross in our place, on our behalf, as a substitute for our sin. That he would be able to endure the shame of the cross for the hope that was set before him and the hope that he followed through on that we benefit from. But Jesus also prays for us, doesn't he? In fact, most of his prayer isn't just for his strength, but it's for us. That as he does what he can do for us, that we would become who he dies and rises that we might become. This is a prayer about our identity. This is how Jesus sees us. These are the marks and the characteristics of what a follower, of what a disciple of Jesus looks like. These are the marks, five marks he prays for, of what it means to be the church. And that's what I want to unpack for us this morning. The five marks or characteristics of our identity in Christ that Jesus prays for us to receive. And David's going to put a little uh, thing up here. This is the madness of my mind. And uh, some of you are, some of you learn by hearing, some of you learn by seeing. Those of you who learn by doing, um, that's fantastic. You got the rest of your lives to put this into practice this week. But I want to I share with you a little bit of what the Lord's been saying to me and working on in my heart and hope this is edifying and encouraging to you. The first mark of our identity in Christ is joy. Is joy. When, when Jesus turns his prayer to cover us, he begins in verse 13, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Do you know the joy of the Lord? Do you have the joy of the Lord? The unashaming, jig-producing joy of the Lord in your life. Do you know the joy of the Lord as the foundation of your life and your strength. Jesus says, I'm praying, Father, that they would not just have a little bit, not that they would just have some, but they would have all of it. The full measure of my joy, not about their circumstances, but where? Within them. 
within them. Here's the thing. Jesus experiences joy in his relationship with the Father. Full measure of joy. The way the Father loves the Son, the way the Son loves the Father, the way that they are intimately bound and connected in relationship with the Holy Spirit, one God, there is joy. There's joy in that relationship. There is delight in that relationship. Jesus experiences the joy of the Father. The Father experiences the joy of the Son. The Spirit wells up that joy in the Trinity. And when God makes the decision to create us in his image and likeness, one of the reasons that he does so is to allow us to experience joy with him and joy with one another, just like he experiences among himself. That's what we're created for. I mean, first of all, God creates the garden. He creates the world, a beautiful place for us to experience joy in relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Then he creates us in his image and likeness and puts us there that we might enjoy walking in his presence and him being him and us delighting in his delight in us. The problem is, is that because of our brokenness, because of our rebellion, we separate ourselves from the joy of the Lord. And we come up with all sorts of wrong ways to try and fulfill joy in our lives. A lot of unhealthy ways, a lot of false ways, a lot of tempting ways that we think are going to bring us true joy and satisfy that emptiness in our heart that's due to our separation from God and all the worldly ways that we try to satisfy the lack of joy in our lives fall short of the joy of the Lord. And the good news is that God doesn't leave us struggling or joyless. He doesn't leave it up to ourselves to try and figure out how to get joy back. Jesus returns us to joy. Jesus returns us to joy. The gospel begins to unfold with Martha, sorry, with Elizabeth and Mary. What does Elizabeth say? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, Mary, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. The very presence of Jesus in the womb of Mary starts causing joy to other people all around him, even unborn people in the womb, like cousin John. The angel said to the shepherds, don't be afraid, shepherds. I bring you good news that will cause great Joy. That's right, when I point to you, good job. Great joy from all people. That was joyful. When Jesus was baptized and he was praying and the heavens open and the Holy Spirit comes down uh, and, and on him and it's like a dove and the Father calls out from heaven, what does he say? You are my dearly loved son and you bring me great joy. Joy. The 72 return with joy and say, Lord, even demons submit to us in your name. In the same way, Jesus says, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. On the night of his resurrection, he comes into an upper room where the disciples are fearful and hiding 
and he shows them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement in seeing him, he asked them, hey, you got anything to eat? There's so much joy. We got to eat. We got to have a party. We got to have a meal together. We got to celebrate this. I'm back. Here I am. It's really me. I'm not a ghost. It's really me. We return to joy through relationship with Jesus. This is the witness and the testimony of the apostles. Um, John will later write to the churches. He'll later write this in 1 John 1 and 5. Like it's the whole theme of 1 John. He says, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, Jesus crucified and risen, so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we know that the Son of God has come and he has given us understanding so that we can know the true God. And now we live in fellowship with the true God because we live in fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the only true God and he is eternal life. This joy of fellowship with God and fellowship with one another is the first mark of our identity as followers of Jesus. It's what he prayed for. It's what he delivers through his sacrificial death and resurrection. It's how the church begins to become who we are so that we can do what he's called us to do. Display his joy to others. Be filled with the full measure of joy to overflowing. You know what that means? That means being a follower of Jesus does not look like this. That means we lift up our heads. That means we hold our hearts high. That means we are filled with the joy of the Father. This is our witness and testimony. Let me tell you how this worked out with me a couple weeks ago. Um, I had, um, it's, been a, it's been a pretty long eight or nine months for me on several different levels. Um, and after Christmas, I was pretty tired. And then I got an upper respiratory infection for uh, about a week. And then my immune system was so low, I got the flu for about 10 days. And um, then went to winter conference and then uh, went on a leadership uh, retreat with Anglican Leadership Initiative. This one was really hard because we had to go to the Bahamas. Um, but I was, doing, I was doing the teaching and I was tired. I wasn't just tired physically, I was tired emotionally and I was really tired spiritually. And um, on the last Sunday of, our, of the trip, as we always do, we had solo time. And so um, our boat is parked about 200 yards off a deserted island. And uh, my friend Alan takes us in a dinghy and just drops us off in these different parts of the island. So I get off and I go to where, like as far away from everybody that I can, and I go to a little cove with a sandy beach, and I would have shown you the video, but it might, have been a, it might be a stumbling block this morning, so you just have to create it in your own eye. But I, I was really, I was like, Lord, speak. Lord, what do you want me to do? Lord, help me. And there was this striving that was going on. There wasn't joy. There was like, Father, I need you. I need you. And I just felt the tension even in my relationship with the Father. And I sat on the beach in my Crazy Creek chair for about five minutes and the Holy Spirit came and I sensed the Father speak the words over me. Matt, 
I love you. I'm so pleased with you. And I just want you to enjoy me right now. Enjoy my love and my delight in you. And for the next several hours, I put on my brand new snorkeling mask that I got for Christmas. And all by myself in this beautiful cove in the middle of nowhere, I just snorkeled around. And I looked at fish. And I just felt the presence and the love of God and the joy that I had lost began to well back up and fill me up, the joy of Jesus to the full. This is our testimony, y'all. This is our story. This is who we are. This is what Jesus does. And just as the Father delights in Jesus and proclaims his delight in Jesus before Jesus has done anything, in his baptism, he hadn't done anything except for make some tables and chairs. He hadn't done anything in his earthly ministry as Messiah yet. And yet the Father says, I love you and I delight in you. And his delight in us, his joy for us is not for what we do, but for who we are, who he creates us to be. The first mark is joy. The second mark is holiness. Holiness. This is what Jesus prays for. This is who Jesus sees us to be. This is who we have become because of what he has done for us. He says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is the truth. Jesus understands this. He experiences a holy, a pure, a set apart, a beautiful relationship with the Father. And we are created to experience the same thing. And once again, our rebellion, the ways that we try to live for ourselves, the ways that we set our hearts and our affections on the things of the world above the kingdom of God, it taints us. It stains us. It makes our holiness go away. It breaks it. And the good news is, is that Jesus doesn't leave us broken or stained or impure. He comes after us to redeem us that we might be holy again in the eyes of God. And I'm really um, thankful for how the Apostle Paul has helped us understand that. Because he, he, he gives a really great illustration in Romans 9. And he talks about... Um, us as using the metaphor of being pots, of being vessels in a house, uh, of being pottery. And he talks about the potter and us as pots. And he says, you know, the potter has, has made us and created us. And there are two kinds of pots in, in your house. There's two kinds of vessels in your house. This would have been really understandable for a first century person. Maybe not so much for us, but let me tell you two of the pots that he's talking about. He says, there's pots for special purposes and there's pots for common use. Now, there are two pots up there and one of them, I think, is what Paul's talking about. Can't prove this, but I'm pretty sure this is true. And there are other people that agree with me. I'm not just pulling this out. Okay, but that one pot is a chamber pot. Okay, poopy pot. That's what it is. Okay, it it is it is not beautiful or clean, um, or uh, something that we want to be like. And yet, 
that is what our sin does to us. That's not who God creates us to be. It's not the way that he desires us to be. But that's what happens as a result of the stain and the uncleanliness of our sin. But there's another pot, and that's a water jug. These two would have been in every house that, that Jesus would have gone in and out of. And that, that water pot would have been to go to the well to fill up with water because you have to have water to live and to cook and everything else. And what the Apostle Paul is helping us see and understand is that we are like one of those pots, not the other. Got the song? We're not a chamber pot. We're not a chamber pot. You are not a chamber pot. God doesn't look at you like a chamber pot. Jesus isn't praying over you like you're a chamber pot. He is saying you are a beautiful, useful, helpful, wonderful, appreciated water pot. Think of all the implications of that and all the symbolism of that. And this is the witness and the testimony of the apostles. Listen to Ephesians 5, 26 through 27. That God might sanctify her, the bride. He's talking about the church. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the what? Word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So the other metaphor that the apostles help us see is that of being the bride of Christ. Being the bride of Christ. Paul writes to the church in um, Colossae, God has reconciled you to himself through the death of Jesus, and as a result, he's brought you into his presence. You are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault, but you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. You see what he's saying? You are a vessel of noble purposes. You have been cleansed and made pure and clean and set apart for God's purposes, not only to be filled with joy, but to be filled with his very presence and glory. That's who you are. We are the bride of Christ. When God prays for us, when God goes to the cross and rises from the dead, he makes us beautiful. It's not just a song. It's the heart of the gospel. He makes beautiful things even out of the disgusting things that we come up with. He turns them and cleans them and redeems them into something beautiful. probably the most helpful memory that I have is on May 20th of 2000 at 7 o'clock in the evening I stood in Church of the Ascension in West Houston and I looked up and the doors opened wide in the back of the church and there was Amanda standing full in white She started walking toward me. Pure, beautiful, radiant, gorgeous, so grateful, so overwhelmed, so not deserving. 
that's what the Lord says about us. That's how he looks at us, y'all, as the church. That is what he prayed for. That is what he has accomplished in our lives. You are clean. You are holy. You are beautiful. You are worthy of the Lord. Third, the third mark is that we are missionaries. We're missionaries. Jesus prays in verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world, Father. Jesus is the first missionary, right? He's the one that comes after us when we were lost and separated and broken. He doesn't give up on us. He doesn't turn his back on us. He pursues us. He finds us. He forgives us and redeems us and calls us back into a right relationship with God here and now and forever. And then Jesus returns us to the missional partnership with God that he designed at our creation in the garden. It was always God's plan that we would be in relationship with him and continue what he had begun, whether it was stewarding the garden or being in relationship with one another or being fruitful and multiplying and continuing the goodness of his creation, his relationship throughout the world. And this is what he does with Abraham when he recalls a people to represent himself to the nations. It's what he does through David, but ultimately it's what's fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus returns us to this missional partnership with God. He comes to seek and save us, and then he sends us out to seek and save others. In our... um, Pastors Learning Cohort, there's about 15 to 17 of us that meet um, twice a month. And uh, for, for lunch, for fellowship, um, for study and sharing, 15, 17 church planters all around the city, ministry leaders from all over the city. And what we did this fall is we read a book called Faithful Presence by a guy named David, sorry, by a guy named Pitch, uh, Fitch, David Fitch, yeah, David Fitch. He was also the uh, plenary speaker at Winter Conference um, in Dallas. But he draws these three circles, and they're so helpful to our understanding of what it means to be missionary. That first circle up there is a close circle. It's what we're doing here this morning. This is a, a close circle, right? And in the center of this close circle, Jesus is the host, this is, this is Jesus' circle. And he is the host, and we are coming around him and being fed and nurtured by him. He's the host. We do that significantly not only in worship and in the hearing and responding to the word, but coming around the sacrament of communion. Then there is um, that next circle, which is called what? Can anybody read that? What? A dotted circle. In the, uh, in the dotted circle, this, this takes place in other areas of hospitality in our lives. This takes place in our homes. When we invite people over for dinner or for lunch, this takes place in our life groups. When we invite neighbors and friends over, this dotted circle is where having been fed and nourished by the Lord Jesus in the closed circle, we go into the dotted circles of our lives and we become the host in Jesus' name. We represent Jesus 
in those dotted circles where people come who may know Jesus and people come who may not know Jesus, we are the host. And then he says, there is this half circle where we go to places and people that do not know the Lord Jesus, but they are the host. And we come in seeking every opportunity to bring the presence of the Lord Jesus to them. These are the three spheres of influence that we have partnering with God to continue his mission and ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, to seek and save what was lost. And as the Father sends him, so he sends us. We're missionaries in all three of these circles. It's the witness of the apostles in the early church. Uh, you see it in uh, the first church in Jerusalem. In Acts 2, 42 through 47, there's worship in the temple courts. There's worship in uh, being devoted to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers in people's homes. And everywhere in between, 24-7, they are going out partnering with God and the power of the Holy Spirit to be witnesses of Jesus with whoever they are, wherever they're going. We're missionaries. Jesus prays and commissions us to be so. Um, it's, really, it's really interesting how God wants to grow our heart to be like Jesus's heart in this way. Um, I had a really cool experience. Um, over Thanksgiving, we were at uh, my parents' lake house, and there's a uh, there's a there's a hammock outside between two trees in the yard that overlooks the lake. It's almost as glorious as Aiden's hair. And um, you just make sure you're still with me, bro. Um, I'm, I'm going on here. I realize that. So um, in, in playing with cousins, whatever, um, Susanna was wearing the James Avery cross that Amanda received um, at her baptism. And Amanda gave that to Susanna when she was baptized. And it's one of the most precious treasures that Susanna has. And in the midst of Thanksgiving rowdiness on the hammock with a bunch of cousins, that chain fell off and fell to the ground. And we spent about three hours looking for it and we couldn't find it. We didn't know that's when it fell off or that's where it fell off. Susanna was crushed. And we prayed. And we looked and we couldn't find. And then we went back out at Christmas and um, after Christmas. And uh, I was uh, reading and Susanna comes in and she looked a little downtrodden and I said, hey baby, what's going on? She said, well, I just have been looking for my necklace at my cross. I'm like, really? How's that going? She says, I can't find it. She tears up. And I said, well, let me put down what I'm doing and, and let's go look for it. So we went out to the hammock and we got down on all fours and we, we started pulling back this thick, Grass and looking down in the dirt for this little cross. And I just felt the Spirit say, Matt, this is a gospel moment for your daughter. Like, you got to share the gospel with her here. This is, this is a moment. And so I started to explain the three stories in Luke chapter 15, the lost, 
son, the lost sheep, and the lost coin. And I began to explain to her that um, God loves finding lost things. And explain to her why God loves finding lost things and how much joy that brings him and all the angels in heaven. And I said, he's delighted in finding you. And I said, because of who God is, I believe that it brings him a lot of joy to help you find your necklace. And wouldn't it be neat if he just showed you his love? I was, y'all, I was out on a limb here, right? Because I'm having this conversation with her, like with excessive amount of faith, with a little bit of trepidation, because if the father doesn't back me up on this, like I'm not helping the problem, okay? But I have faith that he's going to back me up. And so we start, we pray. We say, Father, you love finding lost things. You found us. You've returned us to you. Susanna's lost this necklace. It means so much to her about her identity and you and her baptism. Would you please help us find it just for your glory and for our joy? And Susanna prayed. And about 10 minutes later, I pulled back some grass and there was the cross. And you should have seen the look on her face. And she'll never forget it. And I think the gospel became more real to her in that moment than it has in the previous nine years of her life. The father's so good. He loves finding lost things, lost people. Not just us, but he loves it when we partner with him and going after those who he's going after. We're missionaries, partnering with God in the salvation and redemption of our family, friends, and neighbors. Fourth mark of the church is unity. In verse 21, Jesus says, I pray for them, Father, that they may be what? One. Jesus experiences oneness with the Father. We're created for that same oneness. Male and female, he created us in his image and likeness. We are meant to leave our fathers and mothers to cleave to one another to become what? One. And that is ultimately fulfilled in Christ as the church. That we leave the world and the kingdom of darkness. We come into the church and the kingdom of the son that the father loves. And we are returned to oneness. Jesus prays for it. Jesus dies for it. Jesus rises for it. Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit that we might experience that oneness, that unity, that koinonia. It's the witness and testimony of the apostles. Paul uses the imagery of body that were different parts, some small, some big, some strong, some weak, some modest and hidden, some external, some internal. We're all different, but we're all important to functioning as a healthy, interdependent body with Christ as our head. What part of the body do you think you are? Do you realize the significance that you have regardless of what part God has created you to be? Paul also uses the analogy of the temple, living stones. Jesus himself, the chief cornerstone, kind of like these bricks, you can see that each one is touching, built upon the other. There is an interdependent connectedness that we have. 
And we too, Paul says, are being built together and becoming the dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. Y'all, this is our witness and our testimony. We're experiencing this in our relationships with one another, in our life groups, in our serve teams, um, in our play and in our fellowship, everywhere in between. We're experiencing that interdependently connected spiritual health and growth in the things that we are being and the things that we are doing in our kids ministry with snack packs with our foster adopt ministry with what's about to happen with the new makerspace over in the old school building we are all interdependently mutually submitted to Christ and one another being who we are using our gifts to build one another up and display the glory of the Lord that resides within us by the presence of the Holy Spirit. He prayed that we may be one. He died that we may be one. He has risen that we may be one. We are one. One with him and one with one another. Last Mark, verse 26. I pray that you have, that the love you have for me may be in them. Everything our joy, our holiness, our mission, our unity is a result of love. Faith, yes. Hope, yes. But first and foremost, of all these things, the greatest is love. The fruits of the Spirit, the presence of Jesus in our lives the spirit who is making his life transform our life. What's the first fruit of the presence of Jesus in our lives? Love. Love. And everything else follows. Everything else follows. God is love. Before the foundations of the earth, he set his love on us. Before we even existed, he wanted us And so by his love, he created us in his image and likeness. In his love, he didn't give up on us. He came after us. In his love, he came to be among us so that we might know the love of the Father and what that love and what that relationship looks like. He taught about love. He modeled love. But ultimately, in the greatest demonstration of God's love, Jesus gave his life on the cross for us. When we were still sinners, he died for us. And it was the love of God that raised him from the grave. And Paul says that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the grave now lives within us and gives life to us. It is a spirit of love. If love is the nature of God, St. Augustine says the Holy Spirit is the very manifestation of God's love in our lives. That's our motivation. It's our testimony. It's our witness. We are filled with joy. We are holy and beautiful and set apart as clean and noble vessels vessels for God's purposes. We're missionaries. We're one. And it's all because we're loved and filled with love to love God and love one another as Christ loves us. That's what Jesus was praying for. And this week, I want to encourage you to do three things. One, find your Gethsemane. Find your spot where you have this conversation with the Father this week. 
and pray through your identity. Pray through this prayer. Ask him to make it real in your own life. And third, pray for grace. Pray for your family. Pray that that is true for this church and true for the gathering and true for the new church plant in Mankey Park. Will you join me this week in those three things? I want to do it over us right now and just model for you what it might look like. Sound good? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us and your generosity towards us and how everything that you wanted, everything that you intended, all that you created us to be has been fulfilled in your son Jesus. And Lord Jesus, we thank you not only for what you see in us, but what you've done for us that it might become a reality. And so we ask, come Holy Spirit and fill us with the full measure of Jesus's joy to overflowing. Come Holy Spirit and give us a desire and the ability to build our lives on the foundation of the word. And as we read and mark and learn and inwardly digest the truth of your word, Lord, sanctify us. Come Holy Spirit, help us know the Father and grow in the Son. That as you clothe us in power, Holy Spirit, we may go into our spheres of influence and receive from Jesus and represent Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit, that we might experience oneness with you and oneness with one another, your people, the church. More than anything else, Father, fill us with your love. Fill us afresh with your love. As we come to the table, as we take the bread and the wine, Fill us with your love to overflowing, that we might love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love one another as you love us in Christ. Jesus, this is your prayer, and it's our prayer. Let it be for your glory. We pray in your name. Amen.